If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be in a little bit of chapter 4 and a little bit of chapter 6. But we've been in our series through Hebrews. Here at our church, we preach through the Bible. We preach Old Testament and then back to New Testament and Old Testament. We go back and forth. We want to give you the whole counsel of God's Word because we want you to see all facets of who He is. Right now, in the fall, we typically will do a New Testament book. We're doing Hebrews. We've been walking through it. You can listen to the podcast for any that you miss uh, online. And the theme of our book, the theme of the book of Hebrews that we're looking at is where he says in Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. It's interesting, remember, that the author is writing to Christians telling them to consider Jesus. Like, I thought that's what we told lost people. I thought we told lost people, people that didn't know Jesus, to consider Jesus. This book is being written to people who, who have said they were Jewish, they were Hebrew, then they accepted the Messiah, and now they've drifted away, and, and the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, you stopped considering Jesus in your life. You've got to consider him in all areas of your life. It's not like this area can be off limits and I'll give him this much. You've got to surrender all with what Greg said because he's given everything for you. What do you have to offer him? Nothing. And yet he gives himself fully to you. Why wouldn't you give yourself fully to someone who loved you that much, who cared for you, who wants you to know him by giving us this amazing thing called the Bible, his word as a gift and a testament. And over the last several weeks, I'm going to blow by this. This is what three weeks ago we talked about, attention drift. The author starts out with saying, your attention has drifted. He says there, he goes on and says, we must therefore pay even more attention to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. It's easy to drift away. The Bible's clear on that. That's what the scriptures, it's the story of God's people drifting away and God having to bring them back. Drift away, bring back. That's the story of our book constantly. And if we start to drift, then God calls out and says, hey, trust me again. He goes on and he says, again, I will trust him, the writer of Hebrews says. And he looks at them and says, you need to trust him again. Don't drift. Come back to him. He's willing to accept you. And after you trust him, one of the things that can happen is we can, like Greg said, try to make a deal with God and how we trust him, right? Well, God, what do you want from me? Well, here's what I'll do for you. And he said, if you do that, be careful because you're hardening your hearts. And if you harden your hearts, you won't find rest for your soul. You will not find rest for your life. If you think you trust Jesus, you harden your heart, you'll be miserable. And you'll be one of those miserable Christians that will eventually just give up because it's just not worth it in your thoughts, in your mind. And again, he says you can actually find lifelong rest and eternal rest in Jesus. And who he is, that he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament who saves. That's what his name means. When you heard Greg say Yeshua, Yeshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus. It's Yahweh saves. That's what the name means. It was a very common name, but it means so much. Now this morning, as he talks about hardening our hearts, and trust me, a hard heart doesn't always look hard. A hard heart can look soft. It can put on a show of like, I'm so repentant. I'm so, right? A hard heart can look like a soft heart when really inside they're hard and they don't want to deal with it. They put out their brokenness and their depression as a deflection so you don't confront them or rebuke them or work with them. They just put it out there. You feel sorry for me. And then hard hearts can look what we normally see, which is a hard heart. This morning, here's the question we have to ask. 
Are we willing to deal with the attention drift, the trusting in him? Are we willing to allow God to soften our hearts and find rest in him? Because if we don't, we will never go on to maturity. Listen, we live in a culture in America and in the West of just infant baby children. He goes on, he says this, today, if you hear this, or he he goes on, he says, therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity. He's writing these Hebrews who had believed an elementary message, right, about the Messiah, and he's saying, you need to go on to maturity. There's There's a growth process involved in this relationship with God. We'll look at that a little bit more in just a second, but that's what I want to focus on this morning. So how do we become mature? How do we not let our attention drift, trust him? How do we not harden our hearts? How do we find rest for our souls in a world that has us scared to death right now when we're the ones that are supposed to be the most confident about death? You realize that, right? I I sent our staff team this week. I said, how has the church gone from greet one another with a holy kiss the laying on of hands for healing and praying and blessing, the gathering of ourselves together, right, to we need to not talk to one another, social distance, and do everything on Zoom. Do you realize that when Paul and Jesus and the people of the Bible wrote the laying on of hands, when they wrote about assembling together, and when they wrote about greeting one another with a holy kiss, which I'm not sure what a holy kiss is, but anyway, they did it. Okay, and I, told, I threatened our staff team I was going to start greeting them with a holy kiss, but that's a whole other issue. And so when, when they said that, they had more pandemics and more diseases they could not treat than we have today. They had reason to be scared to death to kiss someone they didn't know, to touch someone with leprosy and all. They didn't have antibiotics. And yet God was like, you're supposed to be the most confident. You're supposed to be the ones that are so trusting in eternity, so trusting in, in, in Jesus, and you're so mature in your faith that you can look at people and say, I'm just not scared. That doesn't mean we act irresponsibly. We recognize people have real fears. We recognize that sometimes to engage those fears, we have to do certain things that, that allow us to engage them, right? If they're not against our faith, like wear a mask sometimes. It's not the wrong thing to do. But when we're walking around just as afraid as the lost world, can I just tell you, you're acting like a baby. That's what we're going to read in just a minute. It doesn't mean you act arrogantly. It doesn't mean you harden your heart and say, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that. No. It means you pause. You come to Christ, and you consider Jesus in the midst of a pandemic. You consider Jesus in the midst of your family. You consider Jesus in the midst of your life. You stop considering Facebook and start considering what God says. And then you tell other people, hey, you might want to consider Jesus. Because even if you survive COVID, you're still going to die from something. You realize that, right? Something's going to take you out. You might as well deal with it now. That's supposed to be our message. And if we're not sharing it, then it just shows that we're not mature. And God says, I want you to be mature. And here's how he does it. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. Isn't that so true? That we read the word of God and it's just like sting. Right? Like if you actually open yourself up to consider Jesus and hear from me, it's sometimes very painful. 
Like Greg shared in his testimony, you open yourself up and he begins to show you because he loves you. Because he loves other people, he wants to show you who you are so he can change you and put you on display of what it looks like to be someone that's been changed by Jesus and now considers Jesus in all the areas of their life. That's supposed to be the Christian message, but we've lost that. He goes on and he says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. You might be able to hide your hard heart. You might be able to hide the fact that you really don't trust him and you haven't surrendered to him. You may be able to hide that to your Christian friends, to your Christian ministry, to, to your husband, your wife, whatever. But you cannot hide from God. He knows your heart. And here's the best part. He knows your heart and he still says, I want to know you. I know your heart, and that's why I died, because your heart is so wicked, so I could give you a new heart. That's our God. Then he goes on, and he says, look at this. It's exposed the eyes of of him to whom we must give an account. What excuses do you have for not considering Jesus in different areas of your life? Relationships. Finances, your time, the way you view the church. The w- what excuses do you have? Because there's going to come a day when you have to give an account. When, when you're going to stand before God and there's going to be an accounting. And let's be honest, none of us likes accounting. I mean, accountants, I don't even, okay, maybe accountants like accounting. But typically they like accounting because they like to find wrong things and fix it. God's not like going to do accounting because he wants to just find all these wrong things and fix us. He does an accounting because he has to as a good and righteous judge. As a good and righteous God, he has to do an accounting. The great part about Jesus is Jesus says you can charge it to my account on his behalf. I'll pay it off. That's no other God, no other religion presents that. And so we're going to have to give an account and someday you're going to go before Christ. You're going to go before eternity. And when you fall down before God and say, I have got nothing to offer, like Greg talked about, I'm done. What did I do in your name? The Bible says, God's going to look at you and say, you didn't do anything. I did it through you. I did it. Oh, I didn't realize that. I was just trying to be with you. I was just trying to read and obey you. I was just, I just wanted to to be close to you, so I just did what you told me to do. I, wa- I wanted to be mature. I wanted us to, to walk together. That's the beauty of the gospel. He goes on in 2 Timothy 3, as Paul's turning over the entire church to this young, new leader, Timothy, <laughs> okay? Paul writes this to him in his last letter he writes to Timothy. He he makes sure that he knows this. He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith In Christ Jesus. Remember, Christ Jesus means the Messiah who is Yahweh who saves. You've placed your entire faith as a Hebrew young man. He was both half Greek, half Hebrew. As a half Greek, half Hebrew, you have really truly placed your faith in the fact that that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament who is the Yahweh of the Old Testament who will save you. You know the scriptures. Do you realize when Paul wrote this, there wasn't a New Testament? 
I mean, it was circulating. Letters were circulating. Stories were circulating, but it had not been compiled yet. Paul's talking about Timothy knowing the Old Testament and realizing the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. How many of you could share the gospel about Jesus without the New Testament? I'm not saying you should or you have to, but how many of you could if you had to? You could go through the Old Testament and clearly show the entire church how Jesus is who he says he is because that's what Timothy was commissioned to do. And that's why he said, you've known since childhood because he had two people in his life. You know who the two people in Peter's life were? Or in in, uh, Timothy's life? They were his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, (laughs) who raised him in the faith and made sure he knew the scriptures. And challenged him and said, son, this is what we're going to do. This is what I'll... And then after they raised him, you know what they did? They kicked him out. They said, you go with Paul. Learn how to be a man. They did. They're like, go. See ya. This is what we raised you to do is to go out and, and, and share the Messiah. Bye. They said bye. They were giving up their security because it was the child, the male children that took care of the women children in the family or the women in the family. And they were like, we're good. You don't need to worry about us. You don't need to take care of us. Just go. Go preach the gospel. Go make Jesus known. We have raised you for this moment to go. Where is that in Christian parenting? Most Christian parents put guilt on their kids because they want to be missionaries. Oh, that's dangerous. Oh, you're going to take my grandkids where? Not not, not Lois and Eunice because they knew the Old Testament and they knew the fact that Abraham was told to go. Where? Where I show you? To a land I show you? When I show you? Have a nice trip. He goes on and he says, look at this. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Those are all maturity words. Those are all words that you use to help someone become mature, right? Training. What's right? What's the right thing? The wrong thing to do? Rebuking. Nah, you did it wrong. Let's try to do it this way. Correcting, hey, you got the answer wrong. Let me show you how to do it right. These are all maturity words. And, he gets, and look what he says. He calls him, he says, from childhood you've known the scriptures. Then he says, so that the what? Man of God. Timothy, stop looking at yourself like a child and grow up. Be the man of God I know you are and know you can be, and I have poured my life into you. It's time to be a man. And may it be complete, may you be complete and equipped for every good work. The man of God takes seriously growing into maturity. He doesn't look to be a child anymore. It doesn't mean he doesn't struggle. It doesn't mean it's not hard. He just says, I want to be a man. And he realizes the best way to become a man is through God's word, nothing else. It's not about how hard you work. It's not how many skills you have. It's not how many degrees you have. It's about, do I really know the God of the universe? Do I really consider Jesus in all areas of my life? And if I do, then I'll be able to take the next step he's asking me to take all the way to maturity. We jump back to Hebrews, where it says that we must give an account. And then the author says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. What confession? It's simple. We confess how great God is. We confess how great we're not. And we say, God, we need you to help us be great. It's that simple. And then once we get great, we're going to give you all the credit. Like we, as, as we're getting better and maturing, we give you all the credit. That's our confession. Love God, love people. 
And he says that confession, for we do not have a high priest. Look at this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way, just like we're tested, just like we go the rebuking, the just Yet he, Jesus, was without sin. He did it perfectly so that he could fulfill the entire Old Testament law and say, I didn't break a single law and I still had to go through this process because it's just the process we have to go through to maturity. And that is, we love quick maturity in our culture. We love everything fast, microwave, do it fast. The Bible does not have quick maturity. God sometimes matures people multiple generations. Takes families multiple generations to mature. And you look at this and you lay this out, and God is saying, Look, I know you're going to give an account, but here's the deal. Don't be scared of giving an account because there's a high priest who's gone in and paid the price for you. He's done the work that the high priest was supposed to do in the Old Testament. See, the high priest in the Old Testament, look at this. This is what he did. What was the role of the high priest? Well, one of the big ones was to manage the calendar, to manage the feast, to manage the rest and the Sabbath. That's what the priests were supposed to do. The high priest was to go in once a year and offer a sacrifice. He would take the blood of a bull, he would pour it over the altar, he would pour it over the, 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 the mercy seat and the holy of holies, and it was to cover the sins of the people. The Bible tells us, look at Leviticus. It talks about this in Leviticus 16. It says, this will be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the foreigner who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you. Atonement is basically someone else pays the price for you. This bull is going to be the atonement. There's an atonement. God, through this bull, the bull is actually not the atonement, but God, through the bull, is saying this is going to pay the price for the sins and the blood you should be shedding. And then he says, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath. That's a rest, a complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It's a permanent statute. The priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as the high priest in place of his father will make atonement. Do you realize that Jesus right now is fulfilling the permanent statue that hasn't stopped? That God didn't like say, stop doing this, it doesn't matter anymore. God said, no, 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 no. Jesus is going to continue to fulfill this forever in heaven until he comes again. It's a permanent statue. We don't have to sacrifice a bull, though, because what we just read in Hebrews, there was a guy who became the ultimate high priest who went in and gave his life instead of this bull and said, my blood will be shed for you. Because the Bible said without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission from sin. And it was to show us that we have to die to ourselves if we're going to be saved. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, he who wants to save his life will lose it. He who wants to lose his life for my sake will find it. He says, consider Jesus. Consider that he is the high priest, doing what only the high priest can do. And instead of just doing it one time a year, Jesus is doing it all the time for you. All the time. He's like, don't, I I cover it. I cover that sin. I cover that sin. All the time. Perpetually forever. Forever. 
It goes on and says this, he will put on the linen garment, the holy garments, and purify the most holy place. He will purify the tent of meeting and the altar will, and will make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. This is to be a permanent statute for you, to make atonement for Israelites once a year because of all their sins. And this was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, Jesus is now doing this not once a year, but all the time because he is the ultimate Passover lamb. He is the ultimate bull sacrifice. It's why we don't sacrifice anymore is because Jesus has made a permanent statute for those who will believe on his blood. And the reason this is important is Hebrews is because the Hebrews were going back to sacrifice bulls. They were going back to sacrifice lambs. They were going back to their old ways saying, well, yeah, we consider Jesus. We know he's the Messiah, but we still need to like pay for some of our sins ourselves, right? We still need to give a sacrifice of a bull. No, the permanent statute's over. That's done away with. Because you have to remember the temple was still around probably at this point. They were still making sacrifices. It didn't get torn down probably when this book was written or just right after this book was written. So they still had the ability to fall back on old things instead of run to the real reality of Jesus. But once the temple's torn down, how do you give sacrifices in the Holy of Holies when it doesn't exist? And that's what God did. He allowed the Romans to come in and destroy the temple. They took it all the way to the ground to get the gold out of it. They melted the rocks so they could get the gold off the walls. So it could not, and it's never been rebuilt. <laughs> because there's a permanent high priest and a permanent statue that's happening all the time because God gave his son. And the Old Testament was a picture of that. So when you consider Jesus and then look back at the Old Testament, you should consider Jesus and go, oh, that's why they did that in the Old Testament. Oh, that's why, oh, that makes so much sense now. It's so important. See, here's the deal. The Old Testament is like learning your numbers and addition in elementary school. One, two, three, four, five. Like you're trying to figure out how to count, right? When you get to the New Testament, it's complicated calculus, quantum mechanics, and off the charts, right? It is like, holy smokes, this is huge. And God's like, yeah, that's how big I am. But we've got to count, you have to understand where you've come from, what God has been doing, and make the addition. Unfortunately, in our modern church, we've thrown out the Old Testament, and then we just kind of go with the New Testament, and our only elementary messages will just accept Jesus. Yes, but do you understand what you're accepting? No, because I can't add, I can't subtract, I can't multiply, I can't do anything. So you don't even know your numbers, but we're telling you to accept someone that you don't even know, like you don't understand anything about it. And then we, to get them motivated to do it, we promise them all kinds of things that aren't promised. Well, you just come to Jesus, he'll fix everything. Have you read the New Testament? Jesus said, if you come to know me, it's going to get worse probably. You're going to be persecuted. It's going to be hard. Will there be blessings? Absolutely. But you live in a cursed world and you're going to get it sometimes. There's nothing you can do. He goes on and says this in Leviticus, you are not to do any work. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. We are not to work anymore for our salvation. That doesn't mean we don't work for God. It doesn't mean we're not surrendered to God. It just means that every work we do, we don't consider it us working for God to get something. We consider it we're working for God because he's already given us everything. See the difference? And that's what he's saying here. The Lord spoke and said, don't do any work. I got it covered. I'm good. Celebrate, worship, tell other people about me. That's your job. 
This is a permanent statute throughout your generations, wherever you live. There's going to be a day when we get to heaven and forever. We'll have work to do, but it won't be work that like is costly. It'll be the work of worship. That's what he's talking about here, the work of worship. That we won't have to do work where we struggle in worshiping. Nope. These are going to be every day in heaven working. He says, look, it'll be, a, it'll, it'll be a complete rest for you and you must practice self-denial. All through the Bible, you see this idea of self-denial, of laying down your life, of giving of yourself because it's the gospel. Jesus denied himself and died on a cross. That's how he fulfilled Leviticus 23. And then at the end, he said, it is finished. The sacrificial system has rested. <laughs> it's done. Then he goes on, he says, the Lord spoke to to Moses, tell the Israelites the festival of booths to the Lord begins on the 15th day of the seventh month and continues for seven days. There's to be a sacred assembly on the first day and you're not to do any daily work. This is what it means to consider God. See, in the Old Testament, they had to consider God with everything, including their calendar. This is what it looked like in the fall feasts. You had the Feast of Trumpets, which was Rosh Hashanah. That happened on Labor Day. And most of you, as I said before, some of you weren't here. But when I asked our church, hey, what's tomorrow? Everybody said, on Sunday, Labor Day. And I said, no, it's not. It's Rosh Hashanah. And none of you knew that. Or a handful did. See, we've even forgotten the Old Testament. We've forgotten to consider how Jesus is in the Old Testament to the point we don't even understand the Old Testament feasts and times and calendars that are really, like, exciting to read. And they're like the calculus and the algebra of the Old Testament. Be like, wow, this is really cool. That gives you confidence. The Feast of Trumpets, it's where they blew the trumpets, right? And the whole nation would get their attention, and it was a time for you to repent. It was a time for you to, to pause and, and go, uh-oh, the rest of the feasts are coming. There's a process coming. This is the same thing that's going to happen at the end of all days. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it talks about a trumpet blowing, and then people are going to disappear. Now, you can argue about when or how that's going to happen, but that's what it says. And in the Old Testament, when they blew the Rosh Hashanah, everyone would come up the mountain to Jerusalem to worship God and worship his sacrifice. His sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as the high priest would offer the bull. And just like Jesus is going to come get us and he says he's going to bring us to his mountain, that's exactly what the model of the Old Testament was. And then after that, after you're now on the mountain, God sends you back and he says, hey, I want you to build temporary booths, temporary tents for you to eat with me, fellowship with me, cut a hole in the top, and I'm going to actually come and eat with you. So you come up to the holy mountain, you realize you're atoned for, and then God says, sends you back out to tell everybody else about it. Does this not sound familiar as Christians? This is our Bible. This is what the book of Hebrews, this is who the, the author of Hebrews is writing to people who should know this, and they've forgotten it. They've separated off and said, well, that's Old Testament, and we know Jesus. No! It's all together one story. And we should understand that God has a process. Did you know that this Thursday was Yom Kippur? The holiest day of the entire Old Testament was Thursday. Now, we don't really know if that's exactly the right date because the dates have been messed up throughout history. But did you even know that that's like happened? Did you even take pause and be like, wow, today's the day 
that was celebrated for thousands of years and I get to know the answer of why, I, why that was celebrated. I get to know the answer of why I don't celebrate it now because it's all about Jesus. And one day I'm going to get to see him and he's going to make it clear that there's atonement for everybody who trusts him. What a day. And you probably just went about Thursday like it was normal. There's some great things if we'll just pause to consider Jesus. And then he says the Feast of Tabernacles is a time of celebration where families would go out and camp. You know, I'm amazed at how much camping goes on in our culture. Do you wonder why, where the idea of a week's vacation came from? It came from the Bible because the days of all were basically a week, week off, a week of Sabbath, a week of preparation to get ready for the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Trumpets. And then the Feast of Trumpets was like another week where they would have vacation time, and go camping. they go to McCormick's Creek, pull up their camper, like we're camping out. They would sleep and they would eat in their camper, in their tent they made. And we think we're just so genius that we figured this out. And God's been telling his people, you might want to do that on a regular basis. God is amazing. He says, consider me in all areas of your life and just read my word, know my word, because if you consider me, I'll show you things that'll blow your mind, because I just love you, because you're my kid, and I want to show you what we do in this family. It's so cool. Now, do we have to celebrate all these feasts and festivals? No, we don't have to. That's the beauty of it. Jesus has set us free to look to him. So when we consider these festivals, it's not like, oh, I got to really do something about the Day of Atonement. Oh, I got to really be careful. No, you just look, hey, there's a Day of Atonement. Jesus did it for me. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. We just consider it. Not we try to work and prove to God that, oh, we believe. We believe in the day of God. Oh, no. He goes on in Hebrews and says this, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, therefore, let us approach. It's the end of chapter four going into chapter five. Therefore, let us approach the throne of what? Justice? The throne of let's give an account? What's the word there? The throne of what? grace. Let us approach the throne of not giving an account. Let us approach the throne of a free gift of grace. That Christ offered himself so that you don't have to try to do all these works to get to him, but he'll change your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit so you want to work for him because you're just so grateful. Then he says, and we approach that throne with boldness versus in the, in the Holy of Holies, the priest would go in scared to death he was going to die. They tied a rope to his leg. He had bells on his tassels. And if he died in the Holies of Holies, they would, or if they didn't hear any noise, they'd pull on the rope, right? And if they heard the bells jingle or he jingled back, they'd say, okay, he's alive. We'll let him stay in there. If they pulled on the rope and nothing happened, they kept pulling until his dead body slid out behind the curtain because the bells would be on the ground and wouldn't ring. That's scary. I wouldn't want to be the high priest that did that. If you had one sin, you're done. God says we can actually go in boldly because of all Jesus has done. Oh, that should amaze you for a moment. There's no fear in coming to him if you're coming to him rightly and properly. Even if you're a mess, even if your life is a disaster, if you're coming to him, even in the shower like Greg, and being like, God, I'm done. God will say, really, are you done? Yep, I'm done. Great. Let's work. And it's a 30-year process, 35, 40, however long God gives you. He goes on to say this. 
so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help at the proper time. God wants to help you at the proper time. If you'll consider Jesus, he'll help you when you need it. And the proper time sometimes means you have to wait. You can't tell God what the proper time is. You can't say, I want this healing now. I want this now. I want this fixed now. You can't do that. You have to say, God, it's your time. And what you say is proper. And so I'm going to obey you. I'm going to trust you until the proper time you take care of this. And sometimes you want to know when the proper time is when you're dead. My sister was healed the first time from cancer by chemotherapy and medicine. The second time she was healed by a miracle and the laying on of hands in a Presbyterian church, not some charismatic crazy church. The third time my sister was healed forever because she went home to be with Jesus and she has a new body. She, she is with him, fully healed. He goes on and he says this. For every high priest taken from man is appointed in service to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's what priests do. We're the sacrifice for others. Then he says, He is able, that's Jesus, to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he also subjected to weakness. Because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as the people. In other words, in the Old Testament, the priest had to make a sin offering for himself and the people. Jesus didn't have to make a sin offering for himself because he never sinned. So he could make the full sin offering for us. And we don't need another bull's flesh or lamb's flesh. We don't even need to sacrifice our own flesh, so to speak, to prove something to God. All God asks us to do is to be like Jesus, which means surrendering our lives and our flesh and saying, it's all yours, do what you want with it. Make it new, resurrect it, because it is dead without you. That's the message of the gospel and going on to maturity. In Hebrews 5, he says, no one takes this honor on himself. You can't make yourself your own high priest, but we got people running around doing it every day. He says, no, you can't do it yourself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron. Aaron was the original high priest of the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament. And through the tribe of Levi, through Aaron, the rest of the priesthood came for the entire Old Testament, for that old system. Now we have a new priest and a new system, but he's not a new priest. We'll see that in a second. He says, in the same way, the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest. Jesus didn't come to earth and say, I'm the high priest. Look at me. I'm the high priest. Hey, come to me. I'm the high priest. That's not what Jesus did. He goes on and he says, but the one who said to him, you are my son. Today, you, I have become your father. Also said in another passage, you are a priest. The you there is Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Aaron's priesthood was a limited priesthood. It was going to happen for a certain proper time that we just read about. And then it would end and there was a forever priesthood. Is this making sense to you? And the forever priesthood is this guy named Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Can we call him Mel? Like I always read his name and I just would call him Mel. Because my daughter's name is Malia and I'll call him Mel. I'll call her Mel sometimes. It drives Susan nuts. She's like, her name is not Mel. That sounds like a man. It's Malia. That's what we named her. And I'm like, I know, Mel's a great kid. And then she's like, ugh, right? So can I call him? Sure, call him Mel if you want, if you can't pronounce it. Mel, so he's a priesthood of Mel. It says, so how, what is this priesthood of Melchizedek? Check this out. Again, if you want to grow on to maturity, know your Bible. Don't just read that and go, I don't know who Mel is. I don't know what a Melchizedek is. Oh, well, I'll just read until I find something that really applies to me. That's not mature. That's not how you pass an English class is you just read until you find something that applies to you. The teacher expects you to know what you're reading and help you comprehend it. 
And we've taught people to read the Bible for application. Find something that touches you, that's important to you, versus, no, you read it to find God. And then God will tell you who you are, and then he'll say, hey, I want you to worship me, and I might want you to do something to worship me. He goes on, look at this. It goes on and says this, and I love this. Of the order of Melchizedek, and he says, oh, sorry, my bad. Then he says, this is in Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, the king of Salem is also the area of Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Look around you real quick. Just look around the room. What do you see on either sides of the room and in the back? Bread and grape juice or wine. comes from grapes. Interesting that Jesus would enact not a covenant of eating bulls and lambs, but that when he has the Passover meal, that Jesus would enact what Melchizedek did in Genesis before Aaron was ever a priest and before there was ever a sacrificial system. Melchizedek priest brought out bread and wine. And when Jesus then said, I'm the new Passover, I'm the Passover lamb, he said, you are going to celebrate with bread and wine for the rest of eternity till I come back, till we celebrate it together in a new kingdom. He was going back to the Melchizedek priesthood before Aaron. And he says, he was a priest to God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And I give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham considered Melchizedek worthy to give him a tenth of everything he had. And Abraham was, or Abram was a very rich man. He had a lot. And he gave him a tenth, like a tenth of it is yours, which is where we get the idea of the tithe. Because it was instituted way before even the Old Testament and the Levite tribe. Abraham gave a tithe to the Melchizedek high priest, not the Aaron high priest. Then he goes on and he says, Then the king of Salem, or the king of Sodom, said to Abraham, Sodom and Salem, interchangeable, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. So this Melchizedek priest, look what he wants. The Melchizedek priest doesn't want anything from Abraham except people. Doesn't want a bull? Doesn't want a lamb? Wait, he just wants people, people's hearts, who people are. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Goes on, it says this. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hands in an oath to Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to who? You. Who's it belong to? The one Abraham is looking at. The one Abram's looking at. He's like, it's all yours. So you can never say I made Abram rich. He goes on and he says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your reward will be very great. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. In this whole process of Abraham going out into the world and he's meeting different kingdoms, he should have been annihilated because Abraham was going out to make another nation. He was making war simply by going and saying, God has called me to overthrow your nation so, so I can build a nation through me. 
And he has Melchizedek come out and say, is that really your heart, Abraham? No, I want to honor God. I want to honor the one that has given me everything. And yes, I give you a tenth, but it's all his. Everything is his. See, this is a beautiful story of what God's trying to see. And then it says, it goes on, and he says this, Psalm 110. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. David wrote this, and Hebrew scholars have always had a problem with this. How can David say, the Lord to my Lord? There's only one Lord, right? There's only one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Lord, Father, to the Lord, the Son. Sit at my right hand, and I'll make your enemies a footstool. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago in what he says in Hebrews. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor. From the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath, and he will not take it back. Forever you are a priest like Melchizedek. He says, the Lord, David, when he's writing this, is saying, the Lord I'm talking to of the ultimate Lord, that's Jesus and the heavenly Father, is saying, forever this guy's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. Forever he's going to make atonement. Forever he's going to do the work that we could never do. And the, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. That's talking about end times. He will judge the nations at the end of all times. That's revelation. Heaping up corpses, he will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Hebrews goes on to explain, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Let me ask you, how do you think you're going to grow in maturity and learn obedience if you're not willing to suffer? Because Jesus said he was. And the Father, and this Hebrews passage says Jesus himself knew that he had to show us the process of being born as a baby, growing in faith, never having sinned, but being willing to suffer even though he never sinned. It is easy to say, I'm suffering because of sin. That's a piece of cake. It is another thing to say, I'm suffering because of everybody else's sin, and I'm doing the right thing, and I'm going to continue to do the right thing, and I'm just going to receive more suffering. That's God. And so... Maybe God's trying to teach you obedience through just the normal suffering of life. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The writer goes on to say this. Look at this. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain. <laughs> There is a lot of information in the Bible. It's a lot of quantum mechanics and calculus, but there's also just simple addition. There's simple numbers that God gives us. He says you can simply be saved just by trusting in Jesus with what you know now, and he'll teach you the rest. He'll help you mature through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God says. And look at this. He says, I have a great deal to say. I want to explain a bunch to you, but here's the problem. You've become too lazy to understand. How many of you have ever read through your whole Bible? I have. Why not? It's the most important book on the face of the planet about the most important person that ever existed and the most important God. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just asking you, how are you too lazy to not read it? I called my daughter yesterday. My daughter's like, Dad, just pray for me. I am so exhausted. I'm like, oh, why? She's like, 
Because I'm having to get up at like 5.30 or 6 every morning. I'm like, why? She's like, well, since I started this new internship where she's, she's in teaching, going to the schools, I have to be at the schools by 8.30, and I still need to find a way to spend an hour with God in the morning, or I'm just no good for these kids when I go to school. That beats my 30 minutes. <laughs> and she doesn't do it because she's trying to get something. She's not doing it. Be- she does it because she genuinely loves Jesus. And she wants Jesus and to con- she wants her people to consider Jesus throughout the day. She's like, Dad, I've never been this tired. I've never told so many people no to things in my life so I can go home and sleep. She goes, but I love it. I'm getting to share Jesus. I talked to this teacher about Jesus and this student about Jesus. And I talk. Take the word of God seriously. We just read about that. That's what Timothy did. And he says, look, don't be lazy. Read it. Engage the body of Christ. Yes, work. You need to work a job. God gave us work. It's to glorify him, to, to use our bodies, to die to ourselves. Absolutely. But ask yourself, am I really serious or am I just being lazy? I just want comfort and security and peace. And I just want to slap Jesus on everything so I can say, oh, I know Jesus, so everything's fine. He goes and he says, although you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You should be teachers by now, but instead we have to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation. You need milk. Not solid food, because you'll choke on it. Then he goes on and says, Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness, because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. How are you doing in training your senses? Here's how you don't train your senses. Well, this is what I want today, so I'm going to get it. This is what I'm going to eat today. This is what I want to do. When you say, this is what I want to do, you can guarantee you're not training your senses because you didn't say, God, this is what I want to do. Hey, is it what you want me to do? I'm considering you, Jesus. Is this what you want me to do? That's how to train your senses. It's to say, Jesus, I want to know what to do, but I'm not going to just expect you to like write it in the clouds as it passes by for me to do. I've actually recognized you've given me an entire Bible that I can go find out what it is to do. Oh, and you've given me a church. You've given me other believers that I can go to. And I say, hey, this is what I'm considering. This is what I'm thinking about doing. Oh, I couldn't do that. That takes way too much time. I'm just going to get what I want. That's what we do in our culture. And we've got pastors and people that tell people, you can just have what you want. Ask for Jesus. He'll just give it to you. He might, but Satan can give you really good stuff too. And he says, do you want to be mature or do you just want to be an infant that cries all the time and everybody's got to wipe your in and clean up the messes after you? Do you want to be someone that can be used by God? Then you're going to have to go through the process Jesus went through, which is one of surrendering himself. Hebrews 6, 1, as we wrap up, says this, Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Right? Not dead works where we're like, I can do more and God will be happy with me. No, those works are dead. We need to give a live works. You know how you do live works? You say, Jesus, I'm considering you. Help me. Work through me. That's an alive work. That's why the Bible says you must be born again. That we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And when we're born again, then we start a new process of maturity spiritually. But the problem is, as we begin that process spiritually, we die to the old versions of maturity that our world puts out. Because the world's trying to mature you into something. It's trying to mature you into a selfish brat. 
And God is saying, I'm trying to mature you into someone I can use, someone that will give your life for others, someone that surrenders their life for others in a way that tells them about who I am. He says, teaching about ritual washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. He's like, you guys have all these discussions about all these rules and things, but you don't consider Jesus. Well, I think we should not wear masks. We should wear masks. We can sanitize every time, not sanitize. I think we should do it. Have you asked Jesus? Have you gone to the scriptures and asked what God would want you to do? Have you considered what his answer might be on these issues? Have you read the Bible and said, well, what does Jesus say about judgment? What does Jesus say? Or do you just sit around and discuss and then go pick scriptures you want out of context, not reading the context, and then slap them on people? The, the, the writer says, hey, if God permits us, we want to talk with you about this stuff. But the reason I'm writing this letter is because you're not ready for this stuff. You won't even embrace the simple things, but you want to have arguments over all the complex things so that you can deflect the simple away from you and grow into maturity. And that's why the book of Revelation or any book written on end times prophecy sells off the charts at Christian bookstores. But any book that talks about the attributes of God and surrendering your life to Jesus sits there and draws dust. Because we want to know hidden knowledge and we want to know all this calculus and quantum mechanics and we can't even count to five. It doesn't work that way. And God in his love is saying, I love you enough to mature you and know you. Genesis 14 says, then Melchizedek Son of Salem, we read this earlier, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high, and he blessed him and said, can I just tell you, communion is the symbol of God's blessing. And as we wrap up, we're going to take communion. It is the symbol of God's blessing to his people from the order of Melchizedek in the Old Testament where he brought out the bread and wine that now we actually know why Melchizedek brought out bread and wine, and back then it wasn't explained to us. Now we know why. Because of this. Because it represents the body of Jesus. The bread, Jesus said, is my body. Look in Matthew, he says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it, just like Melchizedek, and broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is now what represents my body. Not the bulls, not the lambs, not the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Just simple bread. Every time you eat a carbohydrate, consider Jesus. If you're on the Atkins diet, I'm so sorry. He goes on and he says, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the actual true covenant. It is the covenant. The other covenants just pointed to this covenant. This is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Blood is always shed for the forgiveness of sins, the Bible says. But I tell you, from this moment, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, that's the grape juice or the the wine, until that day when I drink it a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. Jesus says, I'm giving you something that you get to do together, and I long to do it with you. That's tabernacles in the Old Testament, by the way. That's the people eating in their tents, sleeping in their tents, going camping, but Jesus isn't physically, God's not physically with them yet. But he longs to be. And he sends the Holy Spirit as that intermediator until he comes back to draw us to himself. And so as we do this, as you take communion, you should take it and think, wow, Jesus allows us to do this together as believers 
because it reminds us that he is the priest. He is everything of the Old Testament. And someday when we are called back to be with him, we're going to do it together. And we get to practice now. That's awesome. And we worship him and we recognize this is Jesus. I consider this bread Jesus. I consider this drink Jesus. He's the living water of the Old Testament. So even water is Jesus. Have you ever taken a drink of water and been like, Jesus? Because he said he's the living water. He wants us to consider him because he loves us. Because listen, tune in if you're tuned out. If you have someone who loves you and is in a relationship with you and truly cares for you, they consider you. And when that doesn't happen, as Greg shared in his testimony, it causes pain and breaks. But isn't it great that God says there's forgiveness? That you can come back? That I can give you new water and new wine and new food? That's the message of our book, the entire book. As we take communion today, I'm going to share a passage of Scripture and then we'll take communion. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church who were kind of like the Hebrews. 1 Corinthians is kind of a mirror, kind of a little bit of Hebrews, only it was written to Gentiles, not to Jewish people, not to Hebrews. 1 Corinthians is a brutal book. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and he broke. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Consider me. That's what remembering means. It, It means consider me. And that's what you do in relationships. In the same way, after the supper, he also took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in considering me, remembering me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we do this, we're proclaiming that he fulfilled the day of atonement. He fulfilled the Old Testament. He was the sacrificial lamb. He did it all. And every time we take communion, it is a declaration of that. And every time you drink a carbohydrate or drink grape juice or take a drink of water, you can also think of that declaration. (laughs) He goes on and he says, I love this. Therefore, whoever drinks the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way should be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without regarding the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. We can cause ourselves to be sick with sin if we won't deal with it. That's what this is saying. And if you take communion because everybody else is doing it around me and so I'm gonna take the, you know, I don't wanna look different. This is why we do communion this way. Nobody's gonna be watching whether you get up or not. We're not going to pass it through the aisles so you're like under compulsion, like, well, they took one, I need to take one. No, you do it on your own. You go and you take communion. There's a little wafer on the top, you'll peel that back, and underneath is the grape juice. And it's a symbol of you saying, God, I'm ready to consider you. I am ready to surrender to you. And if today is the first time you've ever done that, if today is the day for you that you say, I'm done, I surrender to Jesus, I'm asking him to come into my heart. If today is that day for you, then you can take communion and thank him for it. Right now. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to do a bunch of good works. You can just say, God, thank you that you've saved me. Thank you that your body and your blood made the way. Because I can't do it myself anymore. I can't keep killing myself to try to make this work. I surrender. And if you're a believer and you've got sin and issues in your life that you have not dealt with, 
You can tell God, God, I'm ready to deal with them and I'm going to tell somebody about it today to help me deal with it and then you can go to the communion table. But if you're someone that's holding on hard-hearted to things and you are not resting in Jesus, could I just ask you not to take communion? You could take one home maybe with you for when you're ready to deal with it. But could I just ask you to just remember what Jesus did for you and if you're holding something against a brother, then you need to deal with that before you go to Jesus and say, well, you pay for me, but I don't like them. Don't take communion. And it's not a symbol of like, you're a bad person. It's a symbol that you're considering Jesus. Praise the Lord. And I'll stop being, I, there have been times I haven't taken communion. Because I'm like, I just said my heart's not right. I'm not taking it right now. About two or three times in my life. And that's okay. And when you don't take it, can I just tell you, heaven's rejoicing in that. It's rejoicing that you're not just going through the motions. You're actually pausing to consider Jesus. And you're saying, I want to be mature. And the mature thing to do isn't to fit in. It's not to take communion because everybody else is. The mature thing to do is admit where I'm at and ask for God's help and ask for the people of God to help me. That's the mature thing to do. But can I tell you, if you have dealt with that, if you're ready to deal with that, don't feel like you have to take communion to earn something. Communion is a free gift that we offer, and it's a free gift that God offers. He offers a relationship for free. You don't have to put anything in the offering box. We don't even pass an offering. Just take communion if you're ready to commune with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, there's so much more we could go into, but... Lord, the reality is it's pretty simple what you've done and what you continue to do. You are the Melchizedek of the Old Testament. You're the high priest. You have made a perpetual covenant forever through what you've done. You've given us the bread and the wine as a picture of your body that you laid down so that we don't have to worry about dying forever. We can be set free spiritually for the rest of our lives and be given new bodies, the Bible says. You've shed your blood so we don't have to keep trying harder by works to measure up to you, to prove something to you. We can just surrender. And we give our lives to you. That's what surrender means in a relationship that we say, you've given me everything so I don't even have anything to offer that you don't already have, God, so I just give myself to you. Warts and all, mess and all, I'm yours. Lord, that's the symbol of what it means to consider Jesus. And Lord, I pray for us that we would grow on to maturity, that we would mature in our faith, we'd be mature believers that could go out and tell the world the message we heard today to tell the world about the message of Jesus and what he's done for us that we could never do ourselves and that we could go out into the world and offer the world bread, offer the world the fruit of the vine. And Lord, the reality is bread and wine take a long time to make because they have to grow in a field and they have to grow on a tree. They have to mature before they're ready to be eaten. And so Father, I pray that you would mature us as your believers, I pray that we would love your word. We'd love you through your word. Lord, I pray in this moment, we would just go before you knowing that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because you're sitting there with your arms wide open saying, come. And if we're not ready, if there's something we're harboring, I pray that we would see you look at us with loving eyes and say, thank you. Go deal with what you need to and my arms are right here open for you when you're ready. You don't force yourself, you just offer We pray all this in your name. Amen.